friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week. We have another great show lined up for you today. This week we celebrated International Women's Day and we have invited two fabulous women guests that are doing amazing work trying to change the culture for the better. We have Kate Bryan with us today. She made waves back in 2016 penning a piece in the Washington Post uh, that was titled I'm a 32-year-old virgin and I'm living the feminist dream. She's now the author of the book Living the Feminist Dream, A Faithful Vision for Women in the Church and the World. But first, we have another strong Catholic female voice that many read from the pages of the National Review. Her name's Alexandra DeSanctis. She's writing a book with a past guest on the show, uh, Ryan Anderson of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Her book is entitled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It's coming out this summer, time to be released, around the time we expect the Supreme Court to decide the Dobbs case, a case that may very well put an end to Roe v. Wade. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you and Ryan Anderson are have just finished a book that will be coming out in a, a couple months. And the very first mention of the book came in January in an article that you and Ryan penned together for the National Review. It was actually released on Martin Luther King Day. Why that release date exactly? Sure. Yeah, we picked that date mainly because we see the abortion debate as the next big civil rights uh, conflict, I suppose, or civil rights cause in America. And I think the pro-life movement has been saying that for a while. But, you know, to extend the, the right to life to the unborn or to recognize that the unborn child in the womb has the right to life by virtue of their, their personhood, their humanity, and that their citizens like the rest of us is a continuation of the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and other great civil rights activists. And so we thought, you know, explaining our argument argument of our book about the, the many harms of abortion and the humanity of the unborn in that context would be a kind of helpful way of positioning it in, in American history. Alexandra, I'm so excited to read this book. And the title again is called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And you make the case in the book that abortion has just distorted and destroyed so many things in our in our politics, in our culture, in our family relationships. And I'd love to just tick through a few of those with you. Can you explain to us how you think abortion has distorted our politics? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think most Americans, this will be one of the, the arguments in the book that resonates with readers the most, because especially over the past couple of years, anyone who's been paying any amount of attention to our, our national politics will see just how much abortion infects absolutely everything 
everything. You know, not every single debate that we have is about abortion, but it's usually in there somewhere, right? Like think about how, you know, one of the, the major arguments for electing President Trump was that he had pledged to put certain people on the Supreme Court who, for the most part, you know, we expected did not like Roe v. Wade because they knew it was against the Constitution. They knew that this was a, a flawed decision, that all the decisions that came after it were likewise flawed. And that was a major reason why pro-lifers were willing to support Trump, whether they liked him or not. They were afraid of the types of justices that a Democratic president would put on the Supreme Court and put the possibility of overturning Roe uh, further out of reach. So that's just one example of of the many ways in which things have been distorted, that that whole the Supreme Court confirmation process has been uh, turned into a toxic mess because of abortion, because of the fact that the Supreme Court took this decision out of the hands of the American people, you know, pretended that there was some right to abortion in the Constitution. And now everything we ever do talking about the Supreme Court is infected by the fact that that's where our decisions about abortion are made. It's the National Abortion Control Board uh, made up of nine unelected justices. And so I think that's just you know one very large example, but only one of many uh, of how everything is kind of touched by all our political decisions are touched by the fact that we all deeply disagree about abortion and have no democratic means of, of expressing that disagreement. You say, you say something very strong, a very strong statement in the book, and you say the female body is somehow a defective version of the male body, which they take as the norm, and that women can be free and equal only if they are permitted to kill their unborn children. Now, that's a very strong statement, but it does tally up with the fact that abortion promises to liberate women from, from their fertility and also from the consequences of the sexual act in a way that women, that men have always been liberated from to a certain extent. Why, why is it so important to, to drill down on that concept? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that, because I think that's one of the most fundamental, uh, most important arguments in the book, which is that the main argument we've heard in favor of abortion for 50 years now, I suppose longer than that, uh, the main argument that, that pro-abortion feminists put forward in the 60s and 70s when they began pushing for legal abortion was women need this, right? Women are disadvantaged uh, compared to men. Women are unequal compared to men. Uh, especially with regard to sex, but in the workplace as well, their, their social life, their economic life, women are impeded by the fact that they become pregnant, that sex results in pregnancy for women, that it results in childbearing, and that some of the time men abandon women with those consequences. They're able to just walk away in a, a way that women cannot. And the feminist, the pro-abortion feminist response to that was, well, we need to somehow enable women to avoid those consequences too, because it's not fair that they have to bear that burden. And I think the, the correct response, a response that responds uh, respects both men and women as human persons would be to say, uh, no, men actually need to be required to stick around, to be responsible and, and to bear those burdens and consequences with women. Uh, but the response that we see with abortion is, well, let's allow women to be as irresponsible as the most coward cowardly men. Let's enable women to, in a sense, walk away from the consequences of sex, i.e. pregnancy. Uh, but the problem is they can't just walk away, right? They have to participate in and, and consent to a, a violent act against their, their own child. In a very fundamental way, that's harmful to women. And of course, women freely choose this, and some say they're happy about it. But th there's something deeply wrong with the view of what it means to be a woman if you're telling women that they must, uh, you know, violently kill their own child in order to be free and equal to men. You know, I'd love to delve just a little bit deeper into this aspect of the book about how abortion has distorted even our most intimate family relationships, the most tender of relationships, that between a mother and a child 
child. And could you just elaborate a little bit on that, on this idea that our abortion culture has reinforced the idea as as a baby, as a burden rather than a gift, as a baby, as, you know, impeding women's progress. And how you're so good, Alexandra, at explaining these things to your generation of women. So could you elaborate on that just a little bit more? Sure. I think that really, that's at the crux of the argument for abortion, right? And this is why I think so often when you look at the most kind of popular level arguments for abortion, I don't think you'll ever find somebody saying, yes, you know, this is a baby, but you know, the mother or the woman should kill it anyway. And that's, you know, the best thing for her. You never see people say that because that's an appalling argument. I think we all instinctively know that if this is a baby, if this is a human being, there's something very wrong about just sort of dispensing with it in the name of furthering your career or, you know, because you don't have support from your partner or your family or whatever it might be. There's something deeply wrong with that. And I think that's why we see the the pro-abortion argument so often couched in terms of, well, you know, this is just part of the woman's body or it's a clump of cells or it's some, there's many euphemisms for, you know, it's reproductive rights or reproductive justice uh, because they want to position this as anything other than a mother versus her child. But nevertheless, that is implicit in everything that they say. The, The argument is, well, women need this ability to, you know, imply to kill their child because otherwise they will not be able to do X, Y, or Z. And those things are usually, you know, advanced in their career or, you know, maybe even it's just a matter of simple convenience. Maybe they don't have enough money right now. Maybe some even might be getting an abortion because they don't like the way pregnancy affects their body, whatever it might be. All these things that are positioned as being more important than the life of a mother's own child. Uh, and that's why I think why they leave that, that latter part of the argument out because it's a, a really abhorrent thing to say. It's very interesting going back to the fact that uh, your piece in National Review came out on on Martin Luther King Day. Abortion is proposed very often as something that that advances the rights of minorities, of minority women, and and helps them, you know, um, live on a level playing field by liberating them from the necessity of of their children. What is the reality when it comes to minorities and abortion? Yeah. So we actually have a whole section in the book on this in one of our chapters um, that takes a look at both the truly racist origins of the pro-abortion movement. You know, it started in the eugenics movement of the early 20th century and the progressives who were uh, pushing contraception primarily, um, not as a means of liberating women, but because they wanted to sort of stop the growth of what they saw as undesirable populations. So whether that was non-white Americans, poor Americans, uh, people they would describe as mentally unfit, they saw contraception as a way of kind of eliminating or, or slowing the growth of these types of populations in America. And those are the very same people, that movement eventually grew into the pro-abortion movement. And so uh, we kind of chronicle that history, but we also take a look at the effects of abortion today. And of course, Nobody is is intentionally practicing abortion in a eugenic way, I don't think, or or perhaps um, it's a lot less common than it was with contraception. But we do see very disproportionate effects of abortion on minority populations in America. Black women get abortions something like five times the rate of white women. Um, And this the strangest thing about it is that people who support abortion celebrate this as if it's some kind of victory that, you know, non-white women are choosing abortion at a much higher weight higher rates than white women are. Uh, and they say, oh, well, this is progress, or these women need this, or they must have access to it. You know, something like 80% of Planned Parenthood clinics are located within walking distance of majority Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. And I've seen abortion supporters say, isn't this great? They're getting care to people who need it. But it's not care, right? These people are choosing for some reason to kill their unborn children. And that's not a victory. If that's something they have to choose, or they feel like they have to choose, they're actually in a very disadvantaged position. And we should be doing something to help them, uh, you know, choose life for their children, not just give them better 
better access to Planned Parenthood. Uh, so I think it's actually a really twisted argument that we hear a lot from the left on this point. And, you know, if, speaking in terms of doing more to help people to choose life, because we know that most women walking into an abortion clinic don't want to be there. It's not a choice they want to make frequently. And um, and yet we see, you, you say in this National Review article, that many who call themselves pro-choice oppose efforts to help pregnant mothers choose life, re- revealing themselves to be much more pro-abortion than pro-choice. And yet people in the pro-life movement have always worked towards building this culture of life, towards giving women an authentic choice. When we look, for example, in, in terms of how pro-lifers are building a culture of life, the Texas bill, the heartbeat bill, which effectively bans abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy, Texas also passed or appropriated about $100 million on an annual basis in an alternatives to abortion program to give women real choices. So can you can you share with us your thoughts? Um, you know, you've timed the book to come out just after the Dobbs decision. We're all hoping that the Dobbs decision will overturn Roe, but that really, in many respects, would just be the beginning of our work. So can you tell us how you envision the pro-life movement working to build this culture of life if and when the Supreme Court does return abortion policy to the states? Yes, absolutely. And that's something we talk about a lot in the book, which is, of course, as we've all been, well, many of us have been working towards for um, quite a long time now. I, I came to this relatively late, I will admit, but the pro-life movement has been working towards a post-Roe-America for decades. Uh, but the real fight in some ways, or a, a new phase of that fight is going to begin if and when Roe is actually overturned. There's going to be legislative fights, certainly in every state. Suddenly states will most likely have the ability to set their own abortion policy for the first time in 50 years to actually protect unborn children and, and provide for their mothers. Um and so that, that legislative fight should be certainly a, a foremost priority, but this is also a cultural fight. It's not an either or, it's a, a both and. And so I think the, for the most part, what that will look like, like is a continuation of what the pro-life movement has been doing so well for a long time, which is uh, find those pregnant mothers, wherever they are, who feel like abortion is their only option or who feel like they're not equipped to choose life, but might otherwise do so if they had financial support, a job, a place to live while they're pregnant, things like this, and provide those needs, meet those needs. And I think um, some some on the left might say, well, this needs to be an increase in government programs or government spending, and maybe that would be a part of it in some states. But I think a huge amount of it is already provided for and will, will continue to be provided for by pro-lifers who are passionate about this, who dedicate their lives to helping these women. Um, and as you say, it's so telling that that these are the very efforts that abortion supporters oppose, right? They want to shut down pregnancy resource centers. They pass laws trying to force pregnancy resource centers to advertise for abortion. The end game is not give women as many options as possible or or allow them a real choice when they're pregnant and don't know what to do. It is get them into the nearest abortion clinic as fast as possible and try to make sure they don't ever find out about anything else they might be able to do. Um, And I think in a post-Roe world, that disparity will become very apparent to women who have uh, less access to abortion and are looking around wondering what they can do. They'll find, I hope, the pro-life movement um, ready to help. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, and we have the one and only Alexandra DeSanctis with us of the National Review. She's giving us a glimpse into the new book she's co-written with Ryan Anderson of the Ethics and Public Policy Center entitled Tearing Us Apart, 
How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Alexander, does your book explain how abortion has wrecked marriage and the family itself, the concept of, of sex being special for marriage and sex being connected to children and, and then marriage existing for the, for, the re- for the reception and then the care of those children? We do talk a bit about that, and it's primarily in the chapter. We have a a whole chapter dedicated to the way in which abortion has harmed women, family, and, you know, women in the context of family in particular. And I think, um, you know, we even trace some of the data on how poverty has gone up as a result of family breakdown. And abortion, of course, has been a a major driver of this, right? And and to go back to what we were talking about in terms of um, kind of the female body and, and what abortion means for it or how it tries to make the male body the norm, women have been left with the burden of pregnancy as a result of abortion, right? Because abortion says to women, if you don't want to be pregnant, just go get rid of this thing, right? Get rid of the child, get rid of the clump of cells. You're not pregnant anymore. You're participating in sex the way men do and you can walk away. Um, but that creates a, a cultural presumption then that women who are in a uh, kind of consequence-free sex relationship, let's say, uh, where the man is not committed to them, i.e. outside of marriage, if she's in this situation uh, and perhaps wants to carry her child uh, to term and and become a mother, um, or I I suppose parent that child, and the man says, well, I'm not interested in doing that, sorry, I'm leaving, um, you can get an abortion if you want to, right? Suddenly she's in the position of of being left alone precisely because she has access to abortion. Because the assumption is, well, if you don't want to do this alone, uh, too bad for you, get an abortion. I'm not going to help. Uh, whereas a society where marriage is the norm, where sex inside of marriage is the norm, women are, are always supported. And there's kind of a, a societal structure, a, a policy structure in place that discourages men from walking away and that does not leave women entirely alone with the consequences of, of sex and pregnancy. Can the societal, okay. um, I'm sorry, Maureen, can this, is, let me follow up on that with Alexandra. Can that, can that societal structure, is that possible for us to build it back in, in, in a world that is post-Roe? How do you, do you, do you think that that is even a, a hope we can entertain? Yeah, that's a, a very difficult question. And we talk a bit about it in our, our conclusion, because I think, I won't speak for Ryan, but I, I do think we, we agree, he and I agree that, um, there's a huge amount of cultural change that we would need to see to make abortion unthinkable, right? We want, we want, our goal should be that abortion is both illegal and unthinkable. And that's a matter of both law and culture. And a huge part of that cultural change has to be making marriage the norm again, making sex inside marriage the norm again, you know, encouraging men to be strong fathers, strong husbands. And that's not something that a government program or a law can necessarily create. It's something that we all have to contribute to. So I, I don't know that I could say for sure whether that's totally possible. I suspect that a lot of people are, are longing for it and don't know it. Um, so I, so that at least does give me hope. Alexandra, speaking of cultural change, there's another book that has just come out in the pro-life movement that I think will go along way towards changing hearts and minds. And it's written by uh, Gracie Christie's husband, who's both a doctor and a lawyer. His name is Stephen Christie. He also, it turns out, is a fantastic communicator. And he's written this short little pithy book, and it's called Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. And it's just a clever little handbook, because as we all know, when we 
have an opportunity to communicate the pro-life message. Frequently at that, you know, cocktail party conversation, you have about 30 seconds to respond to something. So he came up with this little handbook um, that I, I think you'd be very interested in taking a look at this book and our listeners would as well, because it's just um, a quick rebuttal and he's got all sorts of video downloads and adorable ultrasounds that you can kind of have at the ready on your phone to kind of show people and give them the visual. Um, but but your book, of course, yours and Ryan's, is a really comprehensive and in-depth look at how abortion has distorted our culture. And I wanted to ask you about the um, the corporate culture component. Can you tell us what you, you and Ryan say in the book about how abortion has even distorted our corporate culture? Yes, absolutely. And this kind of goes back to the way in which abortion treats the male body as the norm, right? And if you think about the way women participate in the economy, that is kind of slowed down in a way, or at the very least affected by pregnancy and childbearing and motherhood. And so if a, a woman you know, is pregnant, she might need more time off work. She'll take maternity leave. She may or may not come back to the workforce. She may want to come back in a limited capacity. These types of things enter into a company's calculation when they're hiring women and employing women. And in a culture where you know, men and women are both taken seriously for the, the bodily realities of, of who they are, right? The embodied nature of man and woman that would be respected about women and, and companies would take that seriously rather than, you know, say to women, essentially, why don't you, you know, use contraception to avoid childbearing and, uh, you know, get an abortion if you want to kind of climb the corporate ladder and you happen to get pregnant. And then if you are going to be pregnant, be a mother, kind of go away and do your thing and, and don't bother us anymore. And that's kind of the structure I think that is certainly exacerbated by and enabled by a reliance on and a promotion of abortion. Uh, and that kind of undergirds a lot of what we investigate in the book about sort of woke corporatism and the way big companies have really embraced abortion in the last few years in particular. You know, we saw when these heartbeat bills first started to come out in 2019, big companies, Netflix, you know, Warner Brothers, there, there are plenty, but threatened to boycott states, Georgia in particular, where these laws were being put in place. And they said, look, if this law actually takes effect, we're pulling all of our business out of the state because we support abortion. Basically, it was the, the line. And so you have to wonder. It's kind of a, a complicated thing. Maybe some of these businesses are run by you know pro-abortion true believers, and that's a big part of why they do it. But I think there's also a business calculation. And interestingly, a lot of the time they'll say, this is bad for business, right? These laws are bad for our business. And you have to wonder, why is that, right? Are they saying women won't work for them in a state where there is you know, limited abortion? Maybe. Or are they saying it's bad for business if women get pregnant and leave? because they have children. It's not altogether clear why they do that. So we investigate a lot of these examples and kind of the thinking undergirding it in the book. Alexandra, you write in the National Review about your book, I quote, no book on abortion could fail to highlight how Roe and the past 50 years of court-imposed abortion on demand have undermined the rule of law and constitutional self-government. What do you mean by that? I think the main thing that we all tend to think about when it comes to abortion is how Roe v. Wade was a terrible ruling. And I think mo most pro-lifers are aware of that. But there's kind of a, a deeper argument or a, a broader argument there about how it's distorted the way our law is applied because of, of how the Supreme Court took abortion out of the hands of the people. And so you'll see, for example, in 2019, I mentioned there were a lot of these pro-life heartbeat bills being passed in pro-life states. And at the same time, there were a number of you know very pro-abortion states that were enacting expansive pro-abortion laws, you know, going well beyond what Roe v. Wade even required allowing abortion up to 24 weeks, stating that the, there's a fundamental right to abortion in, in the state, you know, abolishing partial birth abortion bans, just very aggressive pro-abortion legislation. 
And what was most interesting about this as it kind of unfolded at the same time was how all of, of those pro-life heartbeat bills were just immediately struck down by lower courts who said, you know, this is contradicting Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court, this is unconstitutional, you can't have these laws. And all of the laws in the abortion-friendly states, these extremely aggressive laws, were left in place. And this is a, a deeply un, unjust situation where pro-abortion citizens can live in these states and have their will enacted into the law, but pro-life citizens can't because of a truly anti-constitutional backwards view of abortion enshrined by the Supreme Court. And so I think we've seen that play out for about 50 years now because of that. Since we circle back to the political sphere, let me ask you about abortion at the federal level and how you see that playing out in a post-real world. We just saw the, the Senate, the U.S. Senate, just attempted to pass this Women's Health Protection Act in anticipation of a Dobbs decision, which would create this new federal right to abortion that is absolute, that would override every state law everywhere in the nation. So how, how do you see abortion playing out on the federal level in a post-Roe world? Because I think so much of the focus is on the states, rightly so, but yet pro-abortion forces in the Congress will still seek to have their imprint on abortion policy. Yeah, my expectation is certainly that the Democrats will swiftly move to do as much as they can if Roe is overturned to enshrine abortion at the federal level. I think you'll see, if it's this summer, you'll see President Biden trying to pass executive orders. You'll see executive agencies trying to make rules or propose rules that will somehow protect abortion, even in states where it becomes illegal or partially illegal. I think you'll certainly see the Senate try to pass that same bill again. I'm not sure what to expect from the pro-life side. I think there's kind of a wide array of approaches. And, and um, something we talk about a bit in the book is how pro-lifers, when it comes to laws, are actually very accepting of incrementalism, by which I mean, you know, if there's a state where it's deeply unpopular to pass, say, a heartbeat bill, but most people would support a 20-week ban or a 15-week ban on abortion. Most pro-lifers would absolutely support those bills and vote for those bills if they're in the state house, because that's better than nothing, right? The perfect can't be the enemy of the good, and we'll accept those kind of moderate victories on our way, of course, to total abolition, uh, because we know that we have to you know, change hearts and minds so that people will understand why total abolition is, is the only just goal. But the Democrats don't have that comparable willingness to compromise, right? They are are totally all in on all or nothing abortion on demand right now. And they're very used to getting what they want on that because the Supreme Court has been mandating it for 50 years. And so when, you know, suddenly if the Supreme Court is not mandating it anymore, they're not used to making the case for abortion on demand. They're used to saying, well, look at Roe v. Wade. Sorry, you have to have abortion on demand. Like, bye. That's the end of the conversation. And so I think they're suddenly going to find themselves in Congress, you know, running around advocating abortion on demand funded by the U.S. taxpayer, uh, which is a, a deeply unpopular position with most Americans and even most Democrats. You make a really good point because some of their positions are so outrageous and they've been able to get away with that for a very long time. For instance, I'm thinking of eugenic abortion with sex selection, for instance, because true pro-choice people, they believe that a baby should be eliminated for any defect, whether even for the defect of the female sex. Absolutely. And that's something I think that will certainly be exposed in post-Roe America, because right now, you know, to take that example that you mentioned, there are a number of pro-life states that have tried to pass what they call bans on discriminatory abortion. So abortions chosen because the unborn child is diagnosed, say, with Down syndrome or another disability or children who are, as you say, of the, the wrong sex or a different sex than the parents want. And even those laws are regularly opposed by the Planned Parenthoods of the world on the grounds that they're unconstitutional and that you can't do this because of Roe v. Wade. But 
suddenly, if, if Roe v. Wade is gone, right, and the Supreme Court is not banning regulations on abortion altogether, they're going to have to make an actual substantive case for why they think sex-selective abortion or disability-based abortion is okay. And that's a, a very appalling thing to argue. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that everyone will take the time to read your fabulous book when it's out in a few months, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Thank you, Alexandra, for joining us. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Ashley McGuire. We are welcoming a good friend to the show. Her name is Kate Bryan. She's been making waves ever since she wrote a beautiful piece in the Washington Post about living a chaste life. Since that has really become unheard of, it opened a lot of eyes. Uh, she got lots of great reactions on the in the Washington Post. She is now the author of a new book expanding on her article called Living the Feminist Dream. She's also part of an amazing group called the One Girl Revolution. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This week was uh, we celebrated International Women's Day. Well, maybe celebrated it as a strong word. I'm not. I don't know anyone who actually went out and bought balloons and and did the whole celebration thing. We celebrate women internationally, and the concept of woman is is changing very rapidly. It's almost like something that was fixed for many hundreds of years, and now suddenly it's an ephemeral concept. We have to we have to sit around and think: What is a woman? What is what does being a woman mean? So we thought we'd invite you on the show because you have fabulous insights about femininity and womanhood. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that there is. It was so interesting to watch all of the celebrations, as you mentioned, of International Women's Day, and even this month being uh, Women's History Month. But I think that we should be celebrating women and what women stand for because there's so much resilience and strength and women when I look around at women it truly is women that are that are transforming the world helping those who are in need who are making such a difference and we need to be celebrating them every day and not just going on social media and promoting International Women's Day. Kate um, I love how your book addresses feminism from a Christian perspective I think that's so rare and is so needed in this culture where feminism has really been hijacked by a movement that in many ways is not promoting the true flourishing of women, what do we as Christians, as Catholics have to contribute to this sort of ongoing evolution of feminism? Yeah, I think when I was reflecting on the word feminism, and I think that's my entire life and so many things that I've done, when I reflect on the word feminism, the first person that comes to mind is the Blessed Mother. And so from a Catholic perspective, from a Christian perspective, we have this beacon of a woman that was fierce. I think of her as being fierce and who fought for what was right and who said yes and how her one yes transformed the world. And I think that that kind of gets lost in that gets lost in Christian circles and Catholic circles. We don't often think about that uh, as being, you know, her being this fierce feminist, this woman that um, was a beacon for all women to follow. And I think that there is a lot going on in the world when we talk. We hear a lot about feminism, but it's very surface level. I don't think we're getting to the depth of what women truly are. And even when you're thinking about Women's History Month or when you're thinking about International Women's Day, it's kind of this hoorah, you know, we're women. But what does that actually mean? And digging down into 
the heart of women. And that's really found in, in Christianity, in my opinion. Just as a follow-up, this is something I've struggled with myself, having written a lot about women's rights, feminism, is the actual word feminism. And if it's something that we can reclaim and redeem, or is has it become so corrupted by, um, you know, as, as you write about sort of corruption by pro-abortion movement, it's worth noting that only one in five Americans the last time they pulled on this self-identify as a feminist. So, you know, how would you answer the question as to whether, you know, clearly you you use the word and you embrace it. Why? What's your reasoning? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's something that I definitely have thought through. I wouldn't say necessarily struggled with, but wrestled with because we do hear about feminism, quote unquote, feminism all the time, especially working and living in the media circles that we live in. But to me, I love the word feminist um, and especially when it has this kind of Christian like embodiment of what women truly are. So to me, feminism really is celebrating what women truly are, the embodiment of what women are and what they stand for and the power that they have. And that's been, we've lost sight of that in, in the culture, um, in the quote unquote culture war. So I think that we do have the power to reclaim it and there's such an opportunity and in, in you mentioned my book and other things that I've written and things that I've done in my life. There's an opportunity in you using the word feminism and striving to reclaim it, but also to meet people in the culture and have conversations about faith, have conversations about virtue, have conversations about goodness. Um, there's so many different things that we can have conversations with just by using the words, the terms that other people in the culture use. And so that's really, that's why I've been embraced the word feminism. I agree with you, Kate. I think it's important to speak to people in the terms that they're used to in ways that actually make them stop and think because other, if, if we use our, our very own language, which is very proper and very and has its uh, you know feet and very old philosophical traditions we lose other people who haven't had that formation or that education and are any, unable to meet us there so that's wonderful but feminist for a lot of people is a dirty word in some ways and and you can understand why I mean for instance in the title of your book living the feminist dream that's a very provocative title because if I said to somebody ex random person on the street I'm living the feminist dream they would look at me and they would assume that I was you know childless that I had a, a very high powered position where I spent 110 hours at the office and was raking in lots of money maybe married maybe not but in any case you know just completely just satisfied with myself as as a powerful woman in, in a stride of the world that's what most people would think what are you proposing instead as living the feminist dream well for me and and I agree with you but I don't know that everybody necessarily thinks that and I want to challenge people in using living the feminist dream I want to challenge people in the way that they're thinking about what the feminist dream is because in my perspective as of right now I'm not married I'm getting married in May which is great but you know I don't have children I'm 37 years old live this had an amazing career by anyone's standards and I see myself as living the feminist dream I am I think there's a, there's a bridge to be built there and so I want to have those conversations and that's why I very very intentionally chose this title living the feminist dream and I stemmed out of the Washington Post article that I wrote in 2016, where I wrote about, talked about chastity and virtue and, you know, my career and things that I was doing. And I saw myself even in, in that piece that I was living the feminist dream and my decision to live a life of chastity, my decision um, to live out my faith very publicly has led me 
to living the feminist dream. And so it kind of turns it on its head because I agree with you, like on the culture level, a lot of people have ideas of what living the feminist dream is or what being a feminist is. But I don't think that there's any reason that we shouldn't own that and say, actually, I'm living the same feminist. You know, you might be the feminist dream in one way, but this is how I see it, um, that my faith has provided me this opportunity to live the feminist dream. And, you know, another part of what might what, what modern people might think the feminist dream is, is a life of, of relative promiscuity, if not total promiscuity than at least um, several monogamous relationships, you know, replacing each other as, as the years go on. Do you think that that's the most provocative part of, of proposing to, um, to the world what the feminist dream might be, a chaste life? I think it's definitely provocative, especially because people, uh, you know, my Washington Post article, like, I'll go back to that, but the headline of that, I'm a 32-year-old virgin living the feminist dream. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people, when they just read the headline, their head exploded. And I, it, the article ended up going viral, and I think it was mainly because of that title. And it was great because I had so many people of so many different backgrounds, so many different perspectives that read that piece. And that's what I hope for with this book, too, that it gets people to be like, oh, interesting. Like, I might disagree with Kate on X, Y, and Z, or I might not have lived my life in that way, but it's interesting what she's proposing. And that's the feedback that I got from the Washington Post. I definitely got some hate mail and some people (laughs) that were like, you're not a, you're not living the feminist dream. How can you say that? But more than anything, I got so much positive feedback, especially from women. And that's what, from women and girls that wrote me letters that said, I agree with you. I'm living my life that way. Thank you so much for being a voice or women that said, Hey, I think it's interesting what you're doing. I don't agree with you. I'm not living my life in that way, but they found it interesting. And so I think that there's such an opportunity to talk about that with, with, the world. Do you think Chastity's making a comeback? I know I've read that, you know, young, like teens are less sexually active, like sexual activity is on the decline. I've read different theories, like maybe it's because they're so engrossed in their screens, but do you think it's making a comeback? And if so, why? I think it is making a comeback. And actually I have had so many conversations over the past couple of months, most, the most random things like a bar class that I went to, which is an exercise class for anybody who's listening, B-A-R-E, um, <laughs> or, you know, being at the gym or going out for drinks with different friends where they've shared that they are actually living out the virtue of chastity. They've chosen to save sex for marriage or they've had a recommitment. So maybe they live their life in, in one way and they've recommitted. And I think we're starting to see that more and more with young people because Giving yourself away in that that way can hold you back from um, really strive, really living the, the life that, that you deserve and having the respect that you deserve from other people and in dating and relationships. Uh, it's definitely difficult, like all virtue, you know, it's constantly working towards something. I was talking about Lent with somebody the other day and I was like, Lent is such a, it's kind of a similar concept. You know, you have 40 days to really work at something. I, you know, give up things and I end up failing a couple of days into Lent and then I have to keep trying. And so some people from unchastity, you know, they, they, you, you might fail, but you keep recommitting yourself and um, keep working towards that. But yeah, I agree with you, Ashley, that it's definitely making a comeback. And I think that uh, it's going to be so interesting to see how it plays out, even in secular culture, right? I have so many people that I've come in contact with that I was actually shocked when they started telling me about that just to give a um an example of from pop culture i was sort of surprised um was in the show outlander i'm not recommending it um necessarily to the audiences 
But it's, uh, I was surprised to see that the main character, the guy, um, is revealed in season one to be a virgin. And it's not, it's portrayed as something weird. It's actually very, you know, he, he's Catholic. And, you know, this is hundreds of years ago. But it made me for, you know, think maybe even it's trying to get a cool factor in Hollywood because it's so different and so exotic. Yeah, and there's so many celebrities that have come out and said that they're making, you know, maybe they didn't live that way. I love Sierra and um, her husband, and they talked about, like, how, you know, they lived a very, you know, secular life, and then they had a recommitment when they met each other. They were like, we're going to save sex for marriage and do this God's way. And so I, you're seeing more and more celebrities in more shows, I think, that it's starting to come up, even if it's subtle, too. Yeah. I feel like there are so many movies that aren't even having like sex scenes anymore and so that's really interesting that even subtly i think there's there's a comeback coming out in culture if you're just joining us you're listening to conversations with consequences on ewtn radio i'm your hostess dr gracie christie with my co-hostess ashley mcguire and our great guest kate bryan who wrote a beautiful article some years ago in the washington post called I'm a 32-year-old virgin living the feminist dream. She's followed that up with her book, Living the Feminist Dream, a new book. And she's also has a group called One Girl Revolution that I want to ask you about, Kate. Yeah, I'd love to talk about One Girl Revolution. One Girl Revolution really stemmed out of my work in PR and media. So I lived in D.C. Ashley knows this. I had lived in D.C. for many years and then moved back to Detroit and always felt like there needed to be a space for women to tell their authentic stories. I saw so often in the media where, you know, they'd have 30 seconds to tell a story. They'd clip it so that the woman had ended up having 10 seconds to tell her entire story. And anyway, I felt like there needed to be a space where women could tell their authentic stories. So I founded One Girl Revolution as a multimedia platform to tell these stories in an authentic way. And it started out as a podcast so people can listen to the One Girl Revolution podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We have over 141 episodes, which is amazing. Um, All different stories, all different ages, from a little girl who's five years old that makes coloring books for children in hospitals, all the way up to grandmothers or women who are retired now who have dedicated their lives to helping those experiencing homelessness or uh, survivors of human trafficking. I mean, there's so many different stories, and I really think that women are transforming the world every single day, and they are beacons of hope in this world that's so dark. It feels so dark sometimes, and Um, We can feel so hopeless, but these women give me so much hope. And um, the podcast ended up turning into a short documentary as well called The Girl Inside, which was nominated for an Emmy Award, which was amazing. um, We have a second documentary coming out sometime soon. So a lot of different stories, um, but it really is just a space for women to tell their authentic stories. And is the focus of special women doing special things or is it is it about um, finding ways that women are being especially feminine out in the world or using their femininity to to make an impact? Yeah, it's mainly girl, women and girls that are making a difference in the world in some way. So some have founded an organization, you know, that might be the way that they're making a difference, an organization to help marginalize women and children or um, an organization that's helping those experiencing homelessness, as I mentioned. Um, or it might just be somebody that just started a little like kindness project where they make an effort every Sunday to make a meal for an elderly person in their neighborhood. So it's all different big ways and small ways that women are making a difference. I stay away from politics because I feel like it's so divisive in the world. And I really try to focus on where women can come together. Uh, and so that's really the, the heart of One Girl Revolution. Where can women come together together? 
we hear all the time we're stronger together, but this is an authentic way that we really are uh, stronger together. Um, I watched the documentary or the short um, about women in prison and it was really the first time I had thought about the fact that there's women in prison because we mostly hear the stories of men, maybe because their crimes are more violent um, or more egregious, um, but it was really heartbreaking and, you know, I, it's worth noting that Pope Francis, one of the things he's been trying to draw our attention to is uh, prisons. Like it seems to be one of the things that he's focused on. What made you, how did you hone in on, on those women and their stories? Yeah. So I, it really stemmed out of a conversation that I had with a cop, uh, Kim Boguki, who founded, co-founded an organization called the If Project out of Washington state. And she was working in the prison system and felt like women needed an outlet to write their stories, to tell their stories. And so she started sharing all of these different um, statistics about women and women are the fastest growing population in jail and prison. And the majority of those women, there's some ulterior, there's some, some exterior factor. So it's not just men will go in and rob a bank. What, right? Because they just feel like it. Women, there's, there's always some other facet, something else in their life going on. They're trying to feed their kids. There's a, a husband or boyfriend that's pushing them in a direction. So there's always not to say that they don't deserve to be in jail and prison many of the times, but there's some exterior factors. So she started pulling um, back the layers and trying to figure out how do we solve this crisis of women in prison since 1985 uh, women in prison, jail and prison has risen 700%, which is crazy. And so I started thinking about it and then randomly came across this amazing story of this professor from DePaul University that taught a storytelling class within Cook County jail in Chicago, which is the largest jail in the U S and her whole purpose behind it, which Catholics who are listening, I think can relate to this is how can you move beyond something if you don't know how to talk about it? And to me, that's confession, right? Like it's, it's how can you move beyond something that you've done or something that's happened to you if you don't know how to talk about it or you don't know how to share. And so she started this class and it had life-changing experiences on these women. Um, many of them, the five women who are in that documentary and the girl inside, a couple of them have gotten out and are, have gotten their lives back on track and have jobs and really are doing amazing things. Um, and so, yeah, I found her story and had a, a great friend who owns a production company called Behold out of Chicago and they believed in the project. And so by the grace of God and nine months later, we got clearance to take a film crew, which doesn't happen by the way, like people that are listening, you might see like orange is the new black or some TV show that talks about jail and prison, but they don't let film crews in. And so it's just, it's such a gift that we were able to go in. And I really just wanted to give the world a screenshot into the lives of these women and what that experience is like and who these people are, right? Like it's really all about human dignity too. We didn't talk about what they did or what landed them in jail, but who are they truly? And I think we need to have more conversations specifically about women um, in that way. That sounds absolutely lovely, Kate. And I and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us today and giving us a glimpse of something so fascinating um, as the way that you approach femininity and you highlight girls and women. Tell our listeners, please, before we go, where they can access the, the documentary and all the other stuff that you have. Yeah, so they can check out One Girl Revolution at onegirlrevolution.com. It's the number one girlrevolution.com. You can find the documentary there. We were featured on Good Morning America last year, which is really cool. So people can check that out. All the podcast episodes are there. And then the One Girl Revolution podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere you listen to podcasts. 
And then follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at One Girl Revo. So that's number one girl, R-E-V-O. And before you go, what about your book? When can we buy your book? Is it out already? Yeah, so the book Living the Feminist Dream is up on Amazon, and you can also find it on New City Press's website. Um, and I would be so grateful if you would read it, check it out, and buy it for the women in your lives as well. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic Association. Org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel. As together with Peter, James, and John and the whole Church, we behold Jesus transfigured among us. It's a pilgrimage the Church has us make every year with Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration to strengthen us for the journey of Lent and human life. This year, as we continue to pray, fast, and sacrifice for the people in Ukraine, as we begin to suffer the inevitable financial consequences here at home, like higher gas prices, and as some wonder whether we're witnessing the first lethal stages of what could develop into World War III, the lessons we learn take on even greater relevance. The first lesson is about exertion, about the effort that a holy Lent and true Christian life entail. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up a hike of what St. Matthew calls an exceedingly high mountain, Christian tradition associates the mountain where Jesus was transfigured as Mount Tabor, which towers over Galilee in the plains of Megiddo, and takes over 10 minutes to climb in vans zigzagging up narrow paths. It would take vigorous climbers at least a couple hours to ascend on foot. Peter, James, and John needed to leave civilization behind. They needed to leave their comfort zones behind and climb with Jesus, sweating, probably gasping for ear. This Lent, the Lord is likewise asking of us in exertion. He's calling us to hard work, to be on the move. And the pilgrimage he seeks to have us make with him isn't in a van. This spiritual altitude training, however, is meant to strengthen us for the uphill marathon of life in the inevitable vicissitudes that arise. The second Lenten lesson is the help God wants to give us as we make that spiritual and often physical climb. When they reach the top of the mountain, Saints Peter, James, and John see something extraordinary. Jesus is transfigured. He and his clothes become radiant. St. Luke tells us that he speaks with Moses and Elijah, the greatest figures in Jewish history who respectively symbolize the Law and the Prophets, about the exodus he was to accomplish in Jerusalem, when Jesus would lead us through the waters of baptism, through the desert of Lent, to the promised land, flowing not with milk and honey, but the living water that wells up to eternal life. The experience of the various theophanies at the top of the mountain are so powerful, they don't know what to say. But it leads Peter immediately to want to get into real estate building booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to keep the experience going as long as possible. Why did Jesus want them to have this experience? The reason was ultimately to strengthen them to remain strong in faith even when they would descend the Mount of Transfiguration to ascend Mount Calvary. When they would see Jesus transfigured in blood, they would be able to remember Jesus in glory when they got a glimpse of his divinity. The Church helps us to capture the reason for Jesus' transfiguration in the Eucharistic preface for Mass, which the priest prays, For after Jesus had told the disciples of his coming death on the holy mountain, he manifested to them his glory to show, even by the testimony of the law and the prophets, that the passion leads to the glory of the resurrection. It was to sustain their faith in trial. This vision of Jesus' glory is what has sustained the faith of the martyrs in making the sacrifice of themselves for God, because they knew that once they breathed their last, they would see Jesus transfigured. 
I think one of the reasons why we're seeing such courage from so many Ukrainians, especially from the Ukrainian church, is because the transfiguration is so central to Eastern Christian spirituality. And their celebration of the divine liturgy, the mass, is so self-consciously a foretaste of heaven that they're emboldened to do what's right, knowing that suffering and death are not the end. The final lesson might be the most important. God the Father speaks. He begins by affirming his son's identity, but then gets to a curious imperative. This is my beloved son, he thunders. Listen to him. Listen to him. What had Peter, James, and John been doing for the previous two years but listening to Jesus? They listened to him, called them from their boats to be fishers of men. They heard all his parables, the Sermon on the Mount, and his great Eucharistic discourse. They listened to him teach them how to pray and instruct them as they walked along the dusty paths. They listened to him console widows and sinners and lambaste hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. They had been listening to him almost constantly since they first met him. But God the Father noticed something that they themselves hadn't grasped. They had been selectively listening to Jesus. And they had been particularly tone-deaf to what Jesus had been saying about how he was going to be betrayed, suffer greatly in Jerusalem, be tortured, crucified, killed, and on the third day raised. Even though Jesus told them this at least three times, they didn't want to hear it. When Good Friday came, most of them were not within earshot to hear him say his seven last words on Calvary. What they were perhaps even less willing to hear was what Jesus said after he announced his eventual crucifixion and death. Namely, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To be Jesus' disciple, to follow him, he said. They needed to say no to their earthly ambitions, pick up their cross and all it symbolizes, and be crucified with him. God the Father knew that they were ignoring what Jesus was foretelling about his transfiguration and suffering. When instead of dazzling white, they would see darkness on earth. Instead of radiant clothes, Jesus would be stripped and covered with blood. God the Father knew that they were also ignoring Jesus' summons to follow Jesus all the way. So that's why he said, listen to him. This Sunday, the same Father gives us the same command. He wants us to listen to everything Jesus' beloved Son teaches. But the glorious glories of the kingdom, yes. But also about the suffering we may experience on earth so that we might follow Jesus along the spiritual exodus into eternal life, where not only Jesus will be transfigured, but God willing, we will be glorified. On Sunday, we will leave our homes, not to climb the Mount of Transfiguration, but to ascend the altar of God. It's at Mass that Lent and everything else in our faith finds its source and summit. The Lord wants us to make the exertion to leave our comfort zones and come to be with Him. It's at Mass that we see Jesus transfigured, not in glory, but in humility. It's at Mass that we listen to his word, the words of eternal life, and seek to become living commentaries. It's at Mass that we take our prayers to God in a special way, like those we are making for the people in Ukraine, uniting our petitions to Christ from Calvary. It's at Mass that we build a booth for Christ within us. And each time we go to Mass, God gives us a reward for our exertions as a foretaster forever, his beloved Son. So we prepare to behold that Lamb of God. God the Father says to us, Do whatever he tells you. Take seriously my son's words throughout Lent, repent and believe, and accompany him on the pilgrimage on which he wants to lead you up the exceedingly high mountain of the celestial Jerusalem, to my house, where I've built a booth not only for him, for Moses and Elijah, but for you. God bless you. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 